0: Hi, I'm Fred Schonenberg, and thank you for joining me on the VentureFuel podcast. At VentureFuel, we help companies find new solutions by partnering with the best startups from around the world. On the show, you'll learn the secrets of business leaders who tap into startups and the founders driving extraordinary results. We'll consider new ideas, stretch our mindsets beyond the status quo, and in the process, discover how to leap the competition and fuel personal growth. On today's show, I'm speaking with Samara Hernandez, founding partner of Chingona Ventures, the Chicago-based early-stage VC fund. Chingona translates to a woman who is intelligent, fearless, and can get things done. And Samara is all of that. She launched the fund in the beginning of 2020, went on to receive part of a $50 million investment from PayPal Ventures. She is investing in overlooked, massive, and growing markets. Today, we talk about spotting opportunities, diversity as an accelerant to outsized returns, and why cultivating different networks improves your chances of success. So, let's get after it. Samara, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, you launched Shingona a year ago. Can you walk us through your your mission, sort of your origin story for the fund?
1: Yeah. So, I'll tell you yeah, my story and then how I got to the fund. So, my story starts in Mexico. I was born there. I came to the US at a young age. So, I was the uh, not the rich immigrant, the poor immigrant. So, I grew up in a low income, dual language, multicultural household, which is the lens I bring to a lot of different things that I do, including investing. I didn't pick up English as quickly, which you can't tell by my lack of accent now, but I didn't pick up English as quickly, but I picked up math pretty quickly. And okay. so, that led me to Pursue my skill set in math led me to a degree in engineering at the University of Michigan, which led me to a career um, on Wall Street. So at Goldman Sachs, I, I did the public markets for about ten years, and then I went to get my MBA at Northwestern. And then when I graduated, is where I got the interest in in the private markets. At a time when it wasn't really sexy to be in venture capital. Now it's like a thing and everyone's recruiting for it. And I just did something yesterday with Northwestern students. i like, people at 19 years old want to get into it, right? So it's become really popular, but it was at that time. And then after I graduated, I, I joined a local fund here in Chicago that had just started and convinced them to let me on, given my sales and engineering background and with the hopes of learning venture capital. So I was there for. Two funds across, I think, almost five years. And when I was there, I saw three opportunities in the ecosystem. So, first, an opportunity to go in earlier, replacing the friends and family round, right? There's not a lot of angels outside of the valley, right? There, there's not a lot of mature angel networks. Two, go in industries uh, that were massively growing, but often overlooked, especially with consumers and customers that were growing. Their needs were changing, but big companies were slow to adapt. And then three go with founders that had everything that you need for it to be a successful founder um, and had early validation in the business, but lacked the network or the knowledge to raise venture capital. So I saw those three opportunities. And that's why I launched Chingona Ventures in April 2019. I have now made 18 investments so far. We're industry agnostic, but I look at areas in fintech, which is a big part of it. About 30% of our portfolio is in fintech. A future of work, femtech, food, health, and wellness, and edtech. And yeah, I'm excited about it. So I'm um, just ramping up for Fund 2 now.
0: That's great. So Fund 1, you've already raised, that's done. Now you're on to raising Fund 2. Is that correct?
1: I can't publicly say that, but yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm the, working on Fund 2.
0: Got it. It's in the process. Understood. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the way we met, we're both advisory board members for Anhale Ventures. And I know you and I kind of share a, a similar belief that like the best opportunities are not necessarily in the places that people look. When I launched Venture Fuel, everyone's like, oh, you're moving to Silicon Valley because you need to find the startups for all the corporate partners. And I was like, no, I'm in New York and there's great startups here, but there's also great startups in Austin and what have you. Uh, and I think maybe looking in places that aren't as obvious and markets that, you know, whether it's an underrepresented founder, whether it is an overlooked market. So, can maybe we start with? Uh, geography. like Why Chicago? And, and do you find that as an advantage versus maybe one of the coasts?
1: Yeah. So why Chicago? Because I'm here. My family's here. I grew up here. And my largest LP limited partner is the Illinois Growth and Innovation Fund. And so uh, I would say there's pros and cons to being headquartered here. There's a lot of pros being in the Midwest. So the pros are that, you know, it's growing, even since I have an ecosystem in terms of capital, in terms of accelerators, even, you know, Angeles is brand new, right? Like there's a lot of new capital into the ecosystem which I think is great. And it's with that, you can create a lot of innovation around things that have been happening elsewhere, but bringing it here. There's a lot about the Midwest that's really good. Like, we like, we've always liked businesses that had good unit economics, that were capital efficient, that didn't have crazy valuations, which is funny how it's become sexy again, right? Right. But, or I would argue, even the last few weeks, maybe not so much, but like, we've always had that piece of it, which I always appreciate and love, right? And so there's that piece of it. I think the things that we we need to work on, it's not so great about being in the Midwest, is that many times what investors historically have looked for that was good here is not necessarily what it looks good on the coast. And also when a company gets to a certain point, whether it's a series A, B, or C, there historically haven't been huge checks to be written to these companies until so companies go on the coast. And then you know the traction and what they look at was, was very different. And so I think that's changing. And there's a lot of new funds coming to market. Now, I know for me, I early as the pre seed stage with the first institutional check, I like to bring coastal VC money into the companies so that we can build the network and get the metrics that we both look at on the coast and, and, and in the Midwest. And you know it's just a very different way of looking at the business. And here's what I would say too: is that like in the pre-seed stage, there's very few Midwest investors that go pre-seed. And when I say pre-seed, I mean like pre-product, pre-revenue. I mean like they don't look sexy. These businesses look terrible sometimes on the outside. But yep. there's something there that it, whether it's the founder, the market, something. Where as an investor, you are okay with these risks, and many times you are in there a lot. Right? Helping the founder get to that next stage, and so there's very few, and if there are, they write tiny, tiny checks. And it's my check size isn't huge just yet, but I can lead rounds. I can set the terms right, and that that's differentiating for a lot of founders. They're like, I have half my round subscribed for. I have a lead investor who's an institution. You can leverage her diligence, right? And it helps close these rounds very quickly. So you know, I think that there's a lot of great things about the Midwest, but and it's growing. But I also, you know, there, there's learnings from the coastal see that have experience, that have gotten these much bigger, you know, exits that we can bring to the Midwest as well.
0: At Venture Fuel, we source startups from around the globe to do pilots with our Fortune 500 clients. And interestingly, of the 100 plus pilots we've done, less than 20% of the startups were based in Silicon Valley. Our founders came from Detroit, from Chicago, Philly, L.A., Austin, Tel Aviv, Paris, Sydney, London. The best emerging businesses are being created in places most people don't look. What's next isn't where it used to be. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, you mentioned risk, right, and being early, early stage. One of the things when I'm sitting with corporations, you know, they're like, well, What's the likelihood of this becoming a billion dollar business? And I'm like, you guys are looking at this wrong. Like, that's not how this is going to go. It's not predictable to a certain degree. Obviously, you put frameworks on it, there's ways you evaluate this, but there's a lot of inherent risk in being this early. And I mean, your portfolio, you mentioned how big it is now, but it's awesome. You know, you've got Zero, which is zero waste groceries, Vantage Point VR training for diversity and inclusion, and Contos, which we're both involved in, Mm -hmm. uh, looking at story teaching, and even Topple blockchain and sustainability. But with all those, right? When I look at those, I'm like, hmm, there's maybe hurdles in front of them. There's things that they need to overcome. How do you sort of evaluate what that magic piece is that's going to say, this is who I want to bet on?
1: Yeah. And the challenge within venture capital is like you don't know if you're doing well for like five to ten years plus. Yeah. So it is really hard. There's a long feedback loop. And I talked to a lot of people, especially through Angeles and others, of like people that are accredited investors and are looking to get into early stage investing. And it's like, what do you look at? Right. And so you're used many times people that have come from the corporations are used to that framework. And I know I came from Goldman Sachs, right? And I had to do all my training, and uh, we looked at things very, very different—historicals, number based very little like emotional stuff. And in the early stage, it's almost the earlier you go, the more flip it is in terms of like, yes, of course, you look at the numbers and how you're going to make money and the exits and all that other stuff. But there's a lot of qualitative stuff that happens, and that can also lead to bias, which we can talk about at some point. But if you look at the many of the big firms that from where they actually started to where they are today, they look very, very different, whether it's Amazon, Facebook, Google, right? It's really hard for me when I, you know, I'm doing diligence and I reach out to industry experts and in a market because most likely they're gonna say, out of 10 things, they're going to say nine bad things of the reason why it's not going to work. And you as an investor have to figure out why it will work. And that's the hardest piece. And I I would say at the pre-seed stage, and I would say pre-seed and Midwest stage, I have to have like higher conviction than anybody else. Everyone's going to tell me it's not going to work, right? And so I have to figure out a way it's like, How do I look at this business and be like, okay, these are the core things that are really going to be important. And I, and I think you can get them to the next stage. And usually that's like 18 months to prove out this thesis. And these are all the a thousand different risks. And am I okay with these risks at this stage today? And so for me, that is actually super exciting. I like, I love that piece of it for some, for a lot of people, it's not okay or it's, it's just right. And so the biggest piece I would say to this. Many times people call it founder market fit, founder market alignment. I call it the chingona factor, right? It's, it's, it's basically like, what about the founder has in their experience and the way they grew up, what about them has led them to have this unique perspective on this market that they're in, right? This unique insight. And sometimes that's, you know, in the first bucket of like the easy bucket that's easier to find is like, Okay, this person has started a business before, understand in, in this space, or has huge years of experience in it, and now has this unique perspective on like why this industry is so backwards and why they're gonna fix it. So that's one bucket. The next bucket is like, okay, maybe they haven't started a business before, but they have all these different skill sets that can de-risk the business, right? So for instance, in and Steven, he's got a background in private equity, is CMO, chief marketing officer in a million different places. And while he hasn't necessarily started a ed tech business in the past, he knows the MA set, so he knows how to build models, he knows how to sell to corporates, he knows everybody in there. Like, I don't know anybody that doesn't know Steven or has yeah, one degree of separation. He's pretty connected. <laughs> right, right, right. So that's like bucket of like, okay, you know, so so those those two first buckets are like, okay, they're a little bit easier to understand. The third bucket, which I'm also in, is the hardest for people to understand. And it's like someone that's young. Has never started a business. Does not have the pedigree from Stanford, Harvard, whatever. Does not come from big tech, Google, Facebook, or whatever. Is not an early employee there, and and like has this really big idea in this market that's growing, but still early. And I'm actually leading one of those investments right now, and it's like it's hard because it's in the aging tech space, right? So it's growing. There's not a lot of innovation that's happening there. The aging population right now, I mean, they call it 65 and up. But if you think about who the next generation of aging population is, that's like Kris Jenner. That she's sixty-two years old. So, like, this person was somebody that revolutionized the social media um, era and, like, making money off of it through her family. And she's going to be in the baby boomer, right? She's going to be the next aging population. Right. And so, how do we create technology tools for this next generation of people? And there's not a lot that has been done around that. And so, so that's an example of some of something that's like, okay, this person's in it. Super young founder has early early validation, but nothing like if I told any of your like executives and the senior you know living community space, it'd be like, oh, it's never going to work. In one of those. But this is something where like I'm taking a bet on the founder. He's done a lot in the year and a half that I've known him. I'm doing a bunch of diligence with with mentors, with with his customers, right? And there's what I'm assessing is like, okay. Is there something here? Can I get them to the next 18 months? Can we get them at this hypothesis? Can we narrow it down? Can we institutionalize the business? Can we create a structure around board, around KPIs, around like figuring out what the focus is? And then board piece is like, do we have the same view on like the opportunity and the market perspective? And then everything else, like we can get, you know, a team around them to help them get to that next stage. So that's how I think about it. And again, that's mostly with the founder market alignment. There's other stuff around, like, you know, growing market, capital going into it, exits, like some businesses are nice to have, but is this going to be a billion dollar thing, right? So there's all this other stuff, which I think a lot of VCs look at anyway. But I think at the pre seed, it's even more important this founder market alignment.
0: So I think two things are incredibly fascinating. I mean, a bunch of it was, but two I want to kind of play on. I want to come back to bias in a second. Can I get them to the next 18 month stage? This is something I think is really interesting. I was just doing a lot of research on sort of the timeline for success. We've been involved in a lot of product innovation competitions recently. And the question was asked for me it was like, when can we expect to see results of these early stage companies? And what's interesting, what I found was like the big home runs actually take longer to become yes. big home runs. The line I read was like lemons. Become lemons really quickly, but like if you want a plum or a grape, like it takes a long time to get there. So you know a return for a venture, you're looking you know five to ten years to see the, the big one in a lot of cases, right? Not only is your feedback loop kind of slow, but you get the negative feedback faster yes. than the positive, right? How do you balance that eighteen month, like getting to the eighteen month stage? Like what is that mindset to kind of I guess chunk it up into making it something that you can evaluate a little better than... I mean, none of us know what eight years looks like.
1: And many times it's like, I've invested in companies before they had a website before they actually had a name, right? So sometimes it's like getting a product out to launch. That's what we're going to do in the next 18 months and then signing up one or two customers and then getting to that next round of funding because usually that's not enough to self sustained business. Sometimes it's just like, they have a product but they haven't started charging for it and you know how do you get that first piece of revenue coming into the company it's always for me it's yes the bigger vision but I can I'm not gonna focus on that all the time because there's no way we're gonna you know be able to it's like what do we need to do today and you know it's a startup everyday changes and in 18 months so much can happen. Right. You, you can lose your CTO. You can get a customer. You can lose a customer. It's a lot for me about like, what do we need to do to get to that next stage? And usually that next stage involves that next step around funding and funding because usually when you take a venture capital money, there's a whole different set of expectations around growth. Yeah. And for me, like a half when I invest, it's like half a million, a million dollar round typically. And then the next stage is, is typically like, you know, there's a lot of different rounds, but maybe it's one to three or three to four, and then there's there's a couple of different rounds before you get to the series A. It, it's not as perfect as like pre-seed seed and then series A. But what do I need to do? And then in this case, this, the earlier you are, it's like, what hypothesis do we have about the market? What have you done so far to test out part of that hypothesis? And what's this next big opportunity that we're really trying to test and grow? And it's really as simple as that, right? And so many times, it's like, okay, does that mean that we need to, from a product build perspective, like does this raise get you to create a product that will get you your first one or two customers? Do you have one or two customers already, even better yet, that are willing to pay for this product already? So usually it's that piece of it. And look, there's so much, like there's co-founder issues, there's you know, even the economic, the, just the climate right now, like that with the Black Lives Matter movement this past summer, I mean, that was just so hard for so many people. I had one of my founders just text me and be like, I just need a day off. I just, I can't, it's just so much going on. And even last week, with there's so much happening right now with the pandemic. And so for me, it's just like, I'm in a position where I talk to some founders every day. I talk to some founders every week, once a quarter, right. But like, I want to be that person of, all right, you know what? You have enough people on your cap too. You have enough people telling you why it's going to go wrong. Let's figure out why it's going to go right. And let's deal with issues, of course, KPIs and and revenue and all that. Like, yes, but I want to make sure that you're okay, right? We're both okay. (laughs) Everyone's going through something, but like to get you that first hire, that first customer, right? Let's talk through these pieces. And so that's how I think about
0: it. I love it. One of the things when I was uh, you know, researching for our conversation that struck me—it's uh, something you said—that that, that early-stage funds tend to be more collaborative with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of people when they think of VCs, think you know, it's sort of cutthroat. You guys are fighting for every dollar, get every deal right to put your money in. At the earlier stage, there's a lot of co-investing, sharing deal flow, and generally you sort of call it merging of the networks of your networks to find the best opportunities. I love this idea of sort of like a network of networks. Um, it's how we. Venture Fuel, our global innovation network is VCs and early stage founders where we say, Hey, we're trying to solve this problem for Anheuser Busch or Hershey's or whoever our client might be. What are you seeing? Are there things in your portfolio or more likely, is there something else you passed on or that you saw that was interesting? So, just curious on your end, if you could talk a little bit about this idea of like network of networks and how how you've been able to sort of co invest and, and why you bring in other early stage investors.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I like about the pre-seed is it's super collaborative, right? So, like many times, it's these funds that write, call it, one to five hundred k checks, or even at the seed stage that write, you know, seven fifty to million dollar checks out of a two to three to four million dollar round. And so many times, they want others to come in. And so it's great about me now is that like I am not giving competing term sheets. I think I had one founder want me to give that's like, "No, no, no, like we're gonna be. I'll call them up and we can co-lead it and we can figure this out, but we're not going to fight between a 4 and a $3 million valuation. Like it's just, you know, it's very collaborative, which I love. Uh, Sometimes you get some PE guys come downstream and want to like give crazy terms. And, you know, I think... Learn very quickly, it's just just, we're more founder friendly, right? That that whole thing. Now, once you start getting upstream, it starts getting more competitive. You start having more competing term sheets and all that. And and where my fund size is today, and where my fund size will be in fund two, that's still going to work out. Now, for fund three, right? Um, once you get bigger funds, you could get into the space of like, you know, obviously it's in a more competitive stage. Yeah. But the bet is that I'm building out my brand and my network. And as you do that, and as you prove out right that you can make payments, the bet is that people will take your term sheet and you will win those term sheets. But where it is today is that people are both co-investors as well as founders are proactively reaching out. And saying, "Hey, I believe in what you're doing, your mission, and I want your perspective across the table." And so, the bringing me into rounds, which I think is great, it doesn't mean that I don't lose on deals, right? Because it's very competitive, and I still have to fight for them and, and show my value add. But um, that's how it is—super collaborative, which I appreciate.
0: I wanted to make sure I didn't miss. You know, we, we talked about bias a little bit, and I think one of the things that I loved about your your thesis is that you know, sort of. Investing in underrepresented founders or overlooked markets is not a charity, that it is about delivering returns, right? And it it actually the math and the research shows that like that's the best way to invest. And it always shocks me, right? This sort of this idea of I need the Stanford degree and like because that's where I went. And you know, I get it, right? You feel comfortable, you know somebody. But can you talk maybe a little bit about the research and, and how that has guided a little bit of your philosophy here?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of articles I can point to, right? But the bottom line is this, is that I want to make money for my investors. I want to make money for the fund. I want to make money for the founders. And historically, the way venture capital has worked is that money was network-based, was friend-based. And there's actually a lot of funds that still do this, right? So it's like, okay, I made a lot of money being an early employee or being a founder of a big tech company. Then you in turn invested and you invest in your friends, right? And then they built big companies and then it's like this network effect. And so that's why you've seen it look the way it does. Now, um, it's a very close, historically close space. Not a lot of people came into it. It's an apprenticeship business, so it's even hard to get into VC and really understand what that looks like. And there's been a lot of movement around around um, democratizing that, right? Whether it's crowdfunding campaigns, accelerators, rolling funds, there's a ton of movement there. For me, it's really difficult because I'm in a space where I do not consider myself an impact fund. There's impactful things that I do and many of my businesses have a double bottom line and I don't only invest in women and minorities. So I've invested in all straight white male teams. Um, And so the way I think about diversity is very different. First and foremost, hands down, uh, I believe it's going to make better portfolios much better return it's gonna it helps companies understand their customers which is the entire population which in the entire population of the united states is, does not look the same right and that's going to continue to change and you see a lot of those numbers there but for me it's first and foremost on investments now there's people that create you know side vehicles impact funds and all that and there's a place for that. You know, some of my friends are like launching funds just to invest in women and minorities or just in black and brown and as as they do grants and donations. And, and for me, it, you know, there's a place for that for sure. But I want to prove that I can have a truly diverse portfolio and all truly diverse and not Take out one group or the other, and have outsized return and create a big traditional standard fund. You know, a fund that can look just like a bigger name in the future. So that's what I'm trying to prove, and that's the hardest piece of it because sometimes people just want me to invest in women minorities. Sometimes people want me to just be impact. Sometimes people want me just, you know, they like my mission and whatever. And I and I'm like, why can't you have both? And I really think you can. And I and I and that's driven a lot of times from the consumer, right? You you've seen the consumer change in how they buy consumer products, but also products for enterprise. It's just like, we need to design products for the next generation of people and how you design products. is like who, who's building these products and who's founding these companies and who's understanding these customers. And what's hard for me too, is at the earliest stages, when we just talked about it's like founder market alignment and like your network, you don't have much to go off of. So you need to understand certain things that other people don't. And so... For me, you know, there's a ton of bias that happens at the precede stage. And you know, the more founders that we have that look very differently, the more money that's going to go into these investments and help them grow to that next stage.
0: I love it. Well, I'm going to get you out of here on this. It is January. I have to ask you some sort of prediction. Um, really what I would love though is like, what are you most excited about? Whether it's a technology, whether it is a space like where are you spending time right now because you're you're juiced up or something that's piqued your interest in the sort of startup or emerging tech space.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, a lot of behaviors have changed because of COVID. And some of them will change back and some of them will stay. And there's a ton around that, around the way we shop, around the way we work out, around the way we work. And so it actually naturally ties into some of my industries that I invest in, even pre-COVID. So that's future of work, food tech, femtech, health and wellness is a huge one um, at tech. Right, And so it kind of naturally ties into a lot of things we're doing. I mean, education, the way we teach kids, that's changed. But even for me, the way I thought about even pre-COVID is like how we think about getting a degree or learning or upskilling is a big thing for me, right? From a food tech space, the way we eat, the way we... For me, what's really exciting is using food as medicine and changing the way we think about food to the prevention of illnesses is huge. But a big growing trend that actually I've seen a ton of and I might make an investment in this right now is just on e-commerce and how we shop and, and and how we target unique customers in a unique way and diverse set of customers. So there's like actually some pretty exciting businesses I'm seeing here, which I believe this, this trend is just going to stay. And so I'm excited about that. And the last one is on email technology. So I'll Females represent 70% of household purchasing decisions, over half of the population. And many times uh, FemTech investments have gone into fertility. Um, but that's only a, a small part of a woman's life. There's everything from you know adolescence to pre-fertility, pre-when you're trying to have a child to afterwards and menopause, and there's not enough. Understanding that's been going into that, especially women of color in particular, are more likely to suffer from certain, you know, uh, uh, diseases as well as, as suffer from a childbirth death, and even in the United States, right. And so for me, I'm very focused on women's health. And what's unfortunate about this is that even though funding has stayed strong and MNA's activity has stayed strong in 2020, female funding has gone down the most it's gone down in the last three years really? in 2020. Wow. Yes. And in December, there's a jobs report of job losses and basically women accounted for all of them. And so you're starting to see this as like women have to run businesses and they do a lot more in the home. And 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 you know, there's this new kind of generation of women, which is like trying to balance everything during COVID. And you're starting to see that in numbers. And so I am super intentional about ensuring that more money goes into these spaces that are growing, that are massive, but also that are being run by women and making sure that I understand their struggles because I'm struggling with them myself being a mom and and a business owner and and during COVID and making sure that we're um, proactively reaching out to them, um, looking at their business effectively and making sure that they're set up for success. And so those are the biggest trends I'm looking
0: for. I love it. Well, Samara, thank you. This is so great. Where can people learn more about you or, or Shingona?
1: Yeah, so I'm active on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter it's Samara M Hernandez, and then Chingona at Chingona VC um, website. And if anybody has a business, I ch- we check every submission that comes to the website. People are like, do you check cold submission? Yes, actually, more than you know, kind of cold emails. I always ask to go there because we think that's super important. So whether it's a business you want to submit, whether you want to just reach out, I love meeting new people and sharing new ideas. So. Yeah, happy to reach
0: out there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. We really appreciate the time.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you're listening and be sure to hit us up at Venture Fuel on LinkedIn. We drop all sorts of info on there, tease new episodes, give more information on emerging opportunities. That's definitely the spot to follow us. And until next time...